Well, this morning as we come to Matthew chapter 22, we are uh, continuing through this exposition, but uh, this is the, the last of the three tests, if you will, of Jesus by the religious leaders. Uh, if you were with us, the first test was a political test. Should we render or should we pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, the second, which we saw last Sunday, was a theological test. Um, whose wife is this woman going to be in the resurrection? Well, this time it's an ethical test. What's the greatest, what's the most important of the commandments? Now, you've been with us. We've noticed that the religious leaders have been plotting and trying to uh, catch Jesus and somehow discredit him in the eyes of the people, uh, find some way that they could hand him over to the Roman uh, government. Uh, they are looking for any way that they can betray him. And the Pharisees have tried, and this is the third time, and they are hoping that they're not going to strike out. Uh, the first time, they, they thought they were going to be sneaky. Well, we'll send one of our disciples. He won't know it's from us. We'll just send one of him. And, uh, and that didn't work. And then they, they sided with the Sadducees, their theological enemy, uh, if you will. Well, now they've decided, okay, we're pulling out the big guns. We're going to send a scholar from among us. We're going to send a lawyer. Now, a lawyer in our mind, we think of Judge Judy, not Judge Judy, she's a judge, but uh, we think about the hammer, right? We think about the big uh, um, uh, billboards on the, uh, on the highway. But lawyers uh, weren't exactly what we think of today. Lawyers were experts in the law of Moses. And not just uh, experts in it in, a, in an academic sense, but they are also experts in its application into life. And so they have sent one among them, a scribe, a lawyer, and just like the devil himself, the lawyer asked Jesus a question in order to test him. There's an illusion here. If, you, if you're thinking of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's tested three times. Well, now at the end of his ministry, he's tested three times. And the same evil is behind both. And this is the question. Jesus, what is the greatest? What is the most important commandment? Of God? Well, that's a good question, don't you think? We should know what is most important to God. What's, what's the greatest? What's the most significant command of God? Because, well, at least I don't want to break that command, right? But maybe on the positive side, I want to keep that command. I want to do that command. And we even have these same questions today. We, we sometimes rank doctrines, right? Uh, rank them in importance uh, so that we understand, you know, well, who's my friend and who's my foe, right? Uh, we have first-tier doctrines that we sometimes talk about, which are, are central to the faith. And if you don't believe those doctrines, well, we don't think you're a Christian and you're an evangelistic prospect. And then, and then we kind of sort different doctrines out and, and recognize there are things that, that maybe cause us to worship in different churches, though we don't think that uh, just because maybe you baptize babies with our Presbyterians, they're, they're somehow outside of Christ. We don't believe that. But, hey, it's better that we have our different local congregations. And then there's those things even among, amongst us that we recognize there can be differences. Uh, there can be differences of opinion on these things. 
And so we, we have these type of questions as well. We use these metrics uh, to help us decide, you know, uh, how close can we be? Or, or how can we worship? Or, um, or are you a foe? Are you, are you someone who I should be watching out for sometimes? That's, that's usually why we rank doctrines. Well, this expert in the law wants, uh, wants to see where Jesus stands. And if he rightly understands what is most significant to God. But as usual, Jesus' answers are profound, aren't they? They're surprisingly profound. In this sense, it's, it's surprisingly simple, yet not simplistic. It's profound in what Jesus um, replies. And, and Jesus doesn't just go after some outward expression of the law. Here's what you must do. Rather, he goes to the very heart of every commandment of God. He goes to the substance of all the commandments of God, and that is love. He goes to the heart of it. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment of God is actually twofold. It's, it's, it's a two-sided coin, if you will. The greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor. And it's on these two commandments that all the law and the prophets, Jesus said, depend what does that mean? Well, basically it means not that, uh, as maybe sometimes the songs say, all you need is love. You know, that's not what he's getting at here. He's saying that nothing in the scriptures can truly be obeyed or observed unless these two commands are at their motivation. You can't truly keep any of the commandments if you do not love God and you do not love Neighbor, they are the ultimate aim, if you will, of all the law and the prophets. See, being a disciple of Jesus, being a child of God, is not merely having the right doctrines and believing the right things, which is important. You should have the right doctrines. You should believe the right things. But even if you have all those boxes rightly checked and you lack love, you actually don't have those things. You don't have them. This is why Paul exhorts the Corinthians. We read this earlier in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He said, let's suppose I can speak in the tongues of angels. I can discern all mysteries. I have all knowledge. But if I lack love, I'm a big goose egg. I'm nothing. I gain nothing. Even if I were to be a martyr, if I do not have love, I'm nothing. I was thinking this week even of uh, the attacks on 9-11. This command keeps you from a radical view of, well, out of love for God, I will go blow people up. No, that's not a love of God because it does not counter with a, a true love of neighbor. They must be both intact Jesus himself even rebukes the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. It's a glorious section of scripture where Jesus is actually writing letters to various churches. And he commends this church in Ephesus. He says, guess what? I commend you for the fact that your doctrine's right. You hate the things that I hate. But he goes on and he says, but this I have against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. 
It wasn't enough that they had all the, the, the doctrines right. It's that they didn't love. And he says, unless you repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. That means I'll, I'll put an end to your church. I'll put an end. I will leave you. And so this morning, I want to ask you, have you lost that love and feeling? Do you struggle to love God and love your neighbor? Do you find it easier maybe to, to rank doctrines than to love Jesus? Than to love your fellow brother and sister in Christ who might be really difficult? Do you struggle to love the one who is your enemy? What's well, my prayer for us this morning that we would learn to cultivate this morning? From this text, learn to cultivate a deep, all-consuming love for God. A love for Jesus, which would express itself in a genuine love for others. And Jesus' response begins with the command to wholly love God. To wholly love him. And this is what Jesus gets at when he quotes uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse Five in verse 37, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I got into the, the hand motions, this is how we teach our kids to memorize this. We have to point to the heart. Soul is something ambiguous like this, and mind is right here, but it helps them if you're trying to teach them um, how to memorize this text. And by speaking here of the heart and the soul and the mind, what, what is Jesus getting at? He's not so much compartmentalizing us in, in three parts. Rather, he, he's using these terms to speak of the inner being, the essence of who we truly are. This is the place in which all our life flows, if you will. In fact, Jesus will say, out of the abundance of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. It's, it's out of the inside of the person that life kind of expresses itself. Proverbs 4.23 says, it's from the heart that the springs of life flow from us. And he's really talking about all these elements in the soul and the mind as well. Jesus is calling us for an inner love which directs the course of our lives. Now, when we think about our inner self, we usually don't talk about that. Well, my inner self is thinking. We, we don't talk like that, but more often we talk about our, how I feel, right? We're trying to describe something. Well, we talk about how we feel or, or we talk about our will. You know, I just, I've made this decision. I've really thought about this. And, and we engage another element. We, we think about our thoughts, our, our mind, if you will, and, and so I think it's helpful as we consider how do we love God with all of our being? Well, that looks like cultivating a love for him from our, our emotions, our wills, and our minds. We must engage all our faculties as we're seeking to love God with all of our being. And so to cultivate maybe our emotions, or we talk about them as our affections, we, we, tump, we usually go here first, right? When we think about love, we're talking about feelings usually, and, and that's not contrary to love. That's an element of who we are. We, we love through our emotions, if you will. And, and so when we're thinking about loving Jesus with all of our being, we must delight in him. That's how the scripture often puts it. 
Loving God with our emotions is delighting in him, finding joy in him. In fact, the scriptures call us rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say what? Rejoice, right? We find our joy in him. We're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. You see that vivid language. There's, there's delight in it. There's experience in it. James tells us that every good gift that you enjoy, guess where it comes? It comes from our Heavenly Father above. So let me ask you, what is it that you enjoy? Surely you have things that you just absolutely delight in. Maybe it is just a, a dear friendship that you have with somebody. You just find great joy in that person. Maybe it's your spouse, your children. Maybe it's the wonder of creation when you, you consider the stars and the, and the galaxies. Maybe when you look at a, a grand, vast mountain range. Or you consider the rivers and the seas in the depths below. Maybe you're one who just loves a beautiful story. You love stories. Maybe you, you get just wrapped up in a great book. Or you are moved by the lyrics of, of a, a fantastic song. Maybe you just dive deep into a masterful movie or you just love an elegant painting. Maybe it's the thrill of sport. You just love watching athletes compete. Maybe it's the delicious taste of food. In fact, while I was uh, preparing this sermon, I was eating an orange, and I was delighting in it. I've, uh, Sarah's having to up our orange budget. Those little cuties that you get at Sam's, those little bags. I'm eating those like a bag of chips. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I grab those and I peel it open and I was just, it's, this is God's good gift from heaven. And just imagining the fact that this came from a seed that, that produced a tree that then produced this perfectly wrapped delight. I open it up and guess what? It's already pre-sliced. <laughs> has little... Has, has little bite sizes for me. And if you look at it, there's little grooves and they're just packed full with luscious juiciness, right? And you eat it and it's like, oh, this is awesome. And it also gives you plenty of vitamin C and it guards you from colds and all sorts of nasty stuff. It's life-giving. And so before I could finish all these thoughts, I'd already finished it and I needed to open up another one. And I was just delighting in it. And, and so have you ever done that? Have you ever just bitten into it and just thought about the goodness of God and delighting in him? Why does he give us these good things? Because they are expressions of his goodness toward us. Every good thing comes from him. This is just a taste, a foreshadow of delighting in God. And so we love him. Love him with all of our emotions all of our delights. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to taste and see that he is good. This is the one thing that marks the Christian from the non-Christian. The Christian gives thanks and honors him for being God. We give thanks to him. That's another way of saying we love him. But secondly, we want to cultivate a love for him in our wills, don't we? 
Not just in our emotions, but also our wills. We think here of our volition, our ability to make decisions and choices. I I think of that great statement of Joshua as they're about to, to enter the land. And he says, choose this day whom you will serve, right? There's a call there for decision and commitment. He says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. There's a resolve there. There's a willing there. There's a compulsion. That's loving God, if you will. Choosing to follow him. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to. He says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And I think there's a sense in which if we love him, we'll keep. It produces it. We love God and Jesus by choosing to follow him. Some of you need to make a decision to follow Christ. Some of you are waiting around for your emotions to catch up. Sometimes you have to choose, will, I will follow you. We're complicated beings, right? Sometimes we have to overcome how we feel. And sometimes our feeling has to carry us. And sometimes the way we think, it informs the will, which then later produces feelings. And they all work inside and out. That's why Jesus says, you must love me with all of your being. So we choose to follow him. We choose to serve him. We choose to trust him. We choose to obey him. That is part of loving. And sometimes we don't feel like obeying. We don't feel like trusting. Maybe, maybe we feel like anxiety. Maybe we feel like fear. And we have to remind ourselves, no, I am going to trust him that is loving him. I am going to follow you, even though right now it feels like I'm walking through a fog and I cannot see where I'm going. I love you. And I won't stop loving you. This is a yielding of ourselves to him, a yielding of our desires, our goals, our aims, our pursuits, namely that they would be shaped and aligned to his, right? This is why we pray the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I pray that prayer, I I just start thinking, well, what's on earth? Everything that I know of. I'm on earth, my family's on earth, this church is on earth, that your will would be done in my life, which is on earth. My family's life, this church's life, in the life of our country, our society, this world, that your will would be done. That's, That's loving him with your will, praying, Lord, align my will to yours. Finally, we cultivate our love for him with our minds. Our desires and the decisions of the will are often led by what we think, right? We think this is good, so we do it. And this is why Paul calls the Romans to what? Renew your mind. Renew your minds. Or to the Corinthians, take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Or Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart, inner being, Why? So that I may not sin against you. It's the knowledge of God, brothers and sisters. In fact, keeps us from perishing. It's the knowledge of God which shapes the will, which informs the desires and produces new appetites so that we won't choose to sin, won't desire 
to sin. I love how Peter puts it. 1 Peter 1, I think we have this up on the screen. Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. I love that. Preparing your minds for action. Be sober-minded. How? Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You engage your mind that way. Paul's very practical in Philippians chapter 4. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What you think, will to do, right? And then you will experience the peace of God. Do you see how all those elements are intertwined? This is the great commandment. We are to love God with every faculty of our being and to cultivate that love. Now, maybe you're here today and say, I don't, I don't do that, but I want to do that. That's okay, that's all of us. I don't do that, but I want to do that. I want to love you. I want, to, I want to press that upon you. Are, you. are you engaging all your being? And each of us have our go-to. Some of us are more mind people. Some of us are more, just more determined people. Some of us are more emotive people. That's okay. But you must come and exercise all of them. Cultivate them. Exercise them. We're to love God with every faculty of our being. And the use of these faculties, your emotions, your volition, your knowledge, your mind, will shape and cultivate even a greater love for him. See, there's a principle in Scripture. It says that you become what you worship. Those who worship idols, they become deaf and mute just like those that they worship. They're lifeless. Worship is, a, is, a, is, is another expression of love. Guess what? You, you, you begin to worship. You begin to love Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Guess what? You'll become like him. You'll grow. But if you worship other things, they will shape you. And they will mold you into the person you are becoming. Have you ever seen one whose love has grown cold? See them begin to drift. You see that they begin often to think like the world. They begin to desire the world. Where they find real movement is in the world. But those who are captivated by the love of Christ, guess what you'll see? They're growing in their knowledge of him. And as they're growing in their knowledge of him, they're, they're growing in their desire for him. And as they're growing in their desire, they're growing in their delight in him. And you can see it. It's beautiful to watch. And such love, Jesus says, actually begins to overflow into the lives of others. And that's why we come to the second element of the great commandment, to genuinely love neighbor. To genuinely love Neighbor, Jesus doesn't stop with the inner person. 
He begins there, but he doesn't stop there because true religion bears the fruit of love and shares it with others. And thus, this is the second aspect of the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here, Jesus is drawing from another aspect of the law, Leviticus 19.18, which you should go and read it this, this afternoon, maybe. Read it to your mother, okay? And, uh, and, and, and then do it, okay? Love her as you love yourself, all right? <clears throat> but there, there's a range of topics brought up in Leviticus 19. And, and these sometimes are, are strange to us, but, but what we see here is, is we can get our handles around, okay, love my neighbor. Some of them talk about how much you should harvest of your crop, leaving the corners there. And if, if grapes are dropped on the, on the ground, don't pick them up. Well, why? Well, it's actually loving their neighbor. In, in the theocracy of Israel, there was, there was to be a certain amount of gleaning that the poor could come and do and gather from your fields. There's the basic commands in, in Leviticus 19 not to steal. There, there's, there's ethics in terms of paying your, your laborers a worthy wage and not withholding it from them, giving them honest wage. Uh, there, there's elements of how to practice uh, justice in the court system, not, not showing partiality to the poor or the rich. There's even the practical expressions of not hating a family member. And then at the end, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that, that phrase summarizes all these laws, and it even goes on with some more. It's interesting, Jews and, and, and uh, Christians alike have recognized that, that these two commandments, love God and love neighbor, they summarize the Ten Commandments. The first half, love God. The second half, is love neighbor, honor your mother and father. That's starting the second half of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. These are all could be summarized, love your neighbor as yourself. And so as the Ten Commandments, this might be a helpful framework if you're struggling through your Old Testament reading, if you made it that long, uh, you, uh, the whole Old Testament could be summarized in the Ten Commandments. Actually, all those laws are expounding upon applications, if you will, of the Ten Commandments. Well, Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments, love God and love neighbor. And just as the Ten Commandments summarize the old, whole Old Testament, the great commandment gets to the heart of all the commandments. It's love. This is why Jesus says at the end here, in these two commands, the whole law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, they, they hang, they depend. The whole scripture depends on these commands. Love God and love neighbor. So what does it mean then or to genuinely love your neighbor? Well, first we need to understand well, who, who is your neighbor? And when I was a kid and I'd hear neighbor, I was thinking about the person who lived on the right and the left of me. But and that, that includes this person, but this is clearly other people, right? Really, it's just all people that you 
interact with. This is beyond this, you know, for those of you who are college students, you know, this is, yes, this is the person sleeping in the dorm room next to you. Um, This is the person who's in the apartment next to you. This is all these people, but it's even more. It's anyone you cross paths with. In Luke's account, he goes into the Good Samaritan. And a man walking down the road and seeing someone who is in need. Now, certainly, depending on the relationship, love is expressed in different ways, right? But nevertheless, the call to love your neighbor and seek their well-being is the same. You're to have a disposition of, of loving others as yourself. And so, usually, we go to, to, to the personal sphere, and that's right. To love people on a personal level, those you interact with on a, a routine basis, whether that's family, neighbors, coworkers, church members, or any other personal encounter, we want to be loving to them, right? We want to be considerate to them. And this is how we usually think about loving people. But, but we must also think about on a more general level, on a more general level, a way of living in the world that is considerate toward others. Now, you might not have thought about this. Laws that are given by our government, you obey them, yes, so you don't go to jail, but the Christian also obeys them out of love of God and love of neighbor. Because usually these laws are put in place, such as don't text while driving. Why? So you don't kill somebody and yourself. That's loving people. Your personal hygiene, guys, wash your hands after you go to the restroom, right? Love people. Right? You don't want to spread things. There's all sorts of ways of living in the world that is others-minded. Being a good employee and citizen isn't just for your benefit. It is actually the benefit of, of loving others. And you can see, really, the depth of Jesus' command. It, we could spend all day going through every scenario of your life, and it would be summed up, we'll do this out of love of God and love of neighbor. To rightly do this in honor to God, it would be love of God and love of neighbor. You can see how every sphere is to be motivated by this love. But we not only need to consider who we are to love, but how we are to love them. And again, the scriptures exhort us to love both in word and in deed. Word and in deed. We, we love people in the, with the way we speak to them, but also how we treat them. Why don't you look at 1 John 3? I think we'll have this on the screen. The book of 1 John is full of this. And this is one of the most uh, vivid exhortations. He says, by this we know love. This is the Christian knowledge of love. That he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. And notice how the love of God overflows For love of neighbor, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, there it is, that inner self, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. James says, you know, if you just say, oh, be warm and welcome, I'm praying for you and you have the means to meet that need, is such faith good? Are your words having any meaning? Aren't you glad God didn't say, hey, I love you guys? No, 
He demonstrated his love. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So now considering this, this having known this love, go do likewise. In other words, when we're gripped by the love of Christ, demonstrated for us on the cross, it has a practical outworking of how we lay down our lives for one another. And while such love in, in 1 John is directed in, in the specific applications to fellow Christians, guess what? This principle extends even to the world, and Paul gets to this in Galatians 6. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Now you might say, is that everyone in the church? Well, no, he distinguishes that. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's a given that we should be serving and loving one another, but this is, Jesus even says, love your enemies. Love your enemies, which he did. Jesus loved his enemies. That's you and me. And we are to do the same. Do you see? If you understand the love of God, you begin to become like that which you worship. You lay down your life for others, just as Christ laid down his life for you. And so love has a very tangible and practical expression. But it's characterized by virtues. And I want to bring us back to 1 Corinthians 13. This way of love, if you will. And I'm not going to preach another whole text. <clears throat> but I think this is helpful. And, and just um, you know, a note, often what you see in the, the epistles, this is Paul's letter to the Corinthians, is a reflection on the principles we see in the Gospels. But what does it look like to love? Well, well, Paul tells us. First of all, love is patient. What, what does it mean that love is patient? Well, it doesn't run out. It doesn't run dry. It forbears, if you will. Love is kindness. Alexander Strzok says this. Kindness is the readiness to do good, to help, to relieve burdens, to be useful, to serve, to be tender, and to be sympathetic to others. Kindness is love in work clothes. I like that. Kindness is love in work clothes. Paul goes on. He gives another set which basically calls us to be considerate of others. Notice he says, love is not envious, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant or rude. Have you, have you ever considered that? It's considerate of the Rude people aren't considerate of others, right? Boastful people who are all me, 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 you know, the me monster. That's not loving people. That's being all about yourself or, or envying. You, you, Jesus calls it having the evil eye. You're looking at what can others provide me. Love doesn't do that. Love is not me-centered, it's other-centered. It's a way of looking at the world that's considerate of others more than yourself. Love forgives. And Paul describes this later when he says it's not irritable or resentful. Why, why do people get irritable, bitter, or resentful because they won't forgive. That's why. Forgiveness is loving people. Why? Because guess what? 
Love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Promotes the truth, love does. Love is about the truth. And as Jesus has showed us, genuine love is tied to knowing God. Why? Because there is no lie in God. He is truth. Now we often say, yes, you know, speaking the truth is, is loving. That's true, but make sure you're doing it in a loving way, right? Scripture actually tells us to speak the truth in love, in the manner of love. All of us have probably experienced where someone has laid into us, right? For some reason or another. It's a lot easier to receive that when we know that person loves us, right? I mean, the old saying, they don't care what you know till they know you care, is true. It's true. And so notice that the truth badge is couched with a lot of other virtues. And so when we come and we speak to people, yes, we want to speak truth. We want to speak what gives life, but we have to do it in love. And so one of the things I, I think about, this, this might be good, a social media um, little filter for you, or even just a filter in general. What is the motivation of me saying this? Is it because I genuinely love them? Or those people? Or that person? Or is it because I want to win? Is it because I genuinely love them? I almost find out, yeah, I don't, so I better not say it. That's usually the case. Love finally is optimistic. Love's optimistic. And Paul says it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Only pessimists quit, right? Pessimists quit. Pessimists quit on people. People who don't believe the best of other people check out, right? That's not loving. Love believes all things. It assumes the best about people. And you will find the most loving people in our church are the ones who are always saying, hey, let's give them another shot. You will find, oh, they're the most forbearing, enduring people. I, you know, or, or those people say, you know what? I, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But the people who, are, who don't even give the benefit of the doubt, they're already guilty. <laughs> but, but Paul says love believes all things, hopes all things. That's actually how we operate, right? The church, why do we keep going? Why do we keep doing this? Yes, love of God, but also love of neighbor. Why do we keep trying to minister in, in this community? Why do we keep trying to reach southern Indiana? Because to be honest, you could get really pessimistic about everything. Why, you know, what's the good of doing any of this? It's because we believe that the love of Christ will prevail. I believe. Love endures. Jesus just summarizes it this way. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, all these things, don't you want people to bear with you in all things? To believe the best about you? To hope in you in a good way? Endure with you? Have you ever said, that's not what I meant? 
even though that's what you said? What is love? Says, hey, I've been there. I've done that. Even though it was what you meant. But it's okay. Love covers a multitude of sins. What a joyful way to live. What a joyful way to live. But you can only do that if you're captivated by the love of Christ. If you've known that love and you know the sweet delight of it, oh, it's, who am I to hold this against you? So when talk, we talk here at Oak Park about our mission, I, I, I do it. If you hear every Sunday, you, you're used to hearing it, and most of you tune us out. Um, but it's loving Jesus, loving people, and helping people love Jesus. What, what does that come from? It comes from this text. It's the great commandment. Now, some of you might be here today and say, yes, this love, it sounds amazing. In fact, it's too good to be true. I'm not naive. Love, yes, we long for that, but that love, that love does not exist. I'll say, truth is, this church, Christians, we don't live up to this, do we? I'm not saying that in a scolding way. We, we don't do this perfectly. But we pursue it. Why? Because Jesus first loved us. We do know the love of Christ. And each of us are growing at different paces and, 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 and what we're striving and we're pursuing. And, and we, we want the love of Christ manifested in us. We want to abide in his love. And so I, I want to extend this to you. Maybe you're here today and say, yes, I want that love. I want you to know that this love comes through Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you. He laid down his life for unloving people so that you may enter his love by faith. Jesus, out of love, took the punishment that we deserve on the cross, bore our sin, bore our rebellion, bore our ingratitude, our evil thoughts. Why did he do that? That we might experience the love of God forever in his kingdom. He laid down his life so that you may have life. And here at Oak Park, we are just a bunch of sinners. That's who we are. We're a bunch of sinners who have been redeemed by the love of Jesus. And we're growing in our love for Jesus, and we're longing for the full expression of Jesus' love. And here we are to tell you, if we are, are, are candidates for God's love, so are you. So are you. You are welcome to join us because guess what? His arms are open wide. His love is deep. And you cannot outsend his love. And he welcomes you to his love that never fails and endures forever. Let's pray.